0: Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The book of Genesis begins with fact. It begins with fact. No questions, no debate. God doesn't come out and say in the beginning I created it and and let me prove it to you. It simply says clearly in the Bible what God did. That God existed. It begins with fact. But what fascinates me is the way Genesis begins to shift and change as it goes through the narrative. That in about the first half, first 11 chapters of the, of the book, you get this solid fact, but then you move into the lives of men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And these men take us into a new section of Genesis where it ends with faith. It begins with fact, it ends with faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 tells us, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, "...offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type." As a type? As a type of what? Abraham received Isaac back as a picture of Christ, as a type of Jesus. But Hebrews 11 verse 20 tells us by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding the things to come. By faith Jacob as he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph when he was dying made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These primary players in the second half of the Genesis story all die as men of faith. And that's where we pick up as we close out this great book this morning. Genesis chapter 50. Actually, we'll back it off by one verse. Genesis chapter 49, verse 33. We'll begin there. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last And was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Now forty days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. Joseph loved Israel. He loved his dad, and in Israel's death he sought to do right by him. So first he had his father involved in the customary manner of the Egyptians. And you know what's funny to me, we've talked about many times in the past how we think that we're so advanced, we're so technologically sound, that, that we've moved so far along that we've evolved. And yet what's interesting is we can't even figure out how to involve somebody the way the Egyptians did. That men of the past, men of old, knew how to do things that even now we don't know how to do, reveals to us something, I believe, of our arrogance. But I want you to notice something here about Joseph. Not just in the embalming, which normally took at least a month to do, but I want you to notice something about Joseph's faithfulness, his faith. As we come to this perfect ending of of chapter 50 of Genesis, I want you to notice Joseph's faithfulness. His faithfulness, number one, to Israel's stipulation. Verse 5, he says again, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There, there you shall bury me. Jacob said, I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. Don't leave me in Egypt. Bury me in the land of my fathers. But understand this. Joseph's faithfulness is much more than just respect for an old man's dying wishes. It was truly an act of faith on Joseph's part. How so? Why is that? Because the hope of Israel, in fact the hope of all the Old Testament saints, J. Vernon McGee says, was an earthly hope. It was an earthly hope. The land was theirs. It belonged to to them it had been given to them by God Genesis chapter 17 verse 8 God said to Abraham I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God God said to Abraham I will give you all the land of Canaan now what use does a dead man have with land except that Abraham knew something believed something Jacob knew that Egypt would never be his home. Joseph understood Egypt would never be home for Israel, neither the man nor the people. They may sojourn in Egypt for 400 years, but the land of promise was their home. They knew this, given by the Creator Himself and the people of Israel and the saints of old, the Old Testament saints believed in resurrection by faith. Joseph knew where his people were headed. They believed truly that they would be resurrected one day in the land. That the land would be theirs. Do you realize that Abraham never owned any of the land of Canaan, but one small parcel, the cave of Machpelah, where he was buried. That's all he ever bought. It makes no sense. And in my thinking, God says the land is yours, so I think, great, I'm going to go out and purchase the land. And bit by bit, buy up as many parcels as possible. But Abraham knew that God was faithful to his promise. Jacob understood this, and he wanted to be buried in the cave. Why? So that when he was resurrected to a new life, he would walk out of the cave into the land promised to him. And Joseph understood this as well. By faith, Joseph knew where his people were headed. Do you? Do you know really where you're headed? In First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul wrote, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this, and don't miss this. He says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Do you know where you're headed? Joseph had faith in the faithfulness of God to give the land back to Israel. Though not a single solitary son of Israel lived in the land at this point, And that's faith. He knew Israel would be there someday. You'll see that even more so in a moment here. But Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, spoke to his apostles in an intimate and private meeting and said in John 14, verse 3, If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. My friends, this is the hope of the New Testament saints. The Old Testament saints had a hope as well. It was an earthly hope. Resurrection to an earthly promise. The promised land. And that was their hope. The land was their hope. But it was an earthly hope. The New Testament saints had a heavenly hope. Do you know the way to the place Jesus is preparing? He said, I go prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you can be. And you know the way where I am going. We do? Well, Jesus, where is it? What is the way? Thomas said to him in verse 5 of John 14, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, as he says to you and I, I am the way. I am the way. Thomas, you're staring in the face of the way. You're looking at him. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is it. He is the way to our New Testament hope, to our eternal heavenly hope. And if we know this, how then should we live? If we know that Jesus is the way and that he will be faithful To preserve us complete without blame in His coming, as Paul said. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. If He is faithful to that, and we know it will happen, how does that affect the way that we live? Well, back to Joseph's story, verse 7 of Genesis chapter 50. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. The elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt and all of the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. And there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atat, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians, and therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Abel Mizraim simply means a heavy meadow, or a meadow of mourning, or the mourning of Egypt. This is amazing. The Canaanites looked on and they saw this procession, this this funeral march. And they must have wondered, who is this statesman, this grand ruler, this great leader, who would command such a wonderful, amazing funeral march? (laughs) It's just Jacob. Just little old Jacob. Remember, Remember the same Jacob who came before Pharaoh and blessed him in Genesis 48. This same little Jacob who is a nobody in the land of Egypt, what was his greatness? None. He was a little old shepherd. And yet, there's this amazing, huge, magnificent funeral march. It would be like me having a funeral like Ronald Reagan's. Can you imagine the media coverage? Blessing all the channels, the country in mourning, memorials set up in three different places, all for little Ricky Crawford. Everybody shows up to be at the funeral for this great man that nobody really knows. But that's what happens with Jacob. And the second thing you might want to note, if you're jotting down notes, Joseph is faithful in Israel's procession. Joseph was faithful to Israel's stipulation, but now he is faithful in Israel's procession. And we need to see this. Understand, don't miss this. Jacob's importance to the Egyptians was only because of his relationship to Joseph. It was Joseph's sorrow they mourned, and Jacob was great only because Joseph was great. Now who is Joseph a type of in the Old Testament? We talked about this, that Joseph, there are amazing pictures in the life of Joseph that parallel, that preview the life of Jesus. And in the same way that Jacob's greatness here in this funeral procession is measured by the greatness of Joseph, so our greatness is measured by our relationship to a greater than Joseph, Jesus Christ. If there is any good in me, if any grace can be found in me, if any mercy, if any love, it's because of Jesus. It's because of my relationship, my connection to him. Have you ever wondered what your funeral would look like if you died tonight? What your procession would be? Now listen, even in the waning moments of life, even in the last seconds, did you know you can have a dramatic and eternal impact? That even in those last few hours, you can make a decision. We are so deluded in our lives looking back at the past. We look back and we think, I've made such a mess of things, how could I possibly make any good of it now? And here's the reality, folks. Even in those last few moments, you can make a decision that will change your life for eternity and have the possibility, the potential of impacting others in a broad way. Let me ask you this, who doesn't know about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross. You remember as Jesus was being crucified. Two thieves were crucified with him. One on either side. And the one on the, on the one side was, was hurling insults at Jesus. Oh yeah, you're the Messiah. Ooh, Well, why don't you save yourself? And while you're at it, saving yourself, save us too. But there was another thief. Who called out, don't you understand? We are guilty. We are receiving the just and the due punishment for our sins. But this man, this Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you today, today, Today you shall be with me in paradise. One eleventh hour decision by this thief, followed by a history of impact. And isn't it amazing that this has changed lives when we recognize that this thief, whose life was a mess, whose life was headed for the garbage heap, on the cross, as he's about to die, calls out for mercy to Jesus, and you know what? He gets it. It arrives, it comes. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. A life changed instantaneously. Well, that's not really fair, Rick, you may say. I've been a Christian all my life. I think I've earned a little more than someone coming along at the last second, jumping on the bus. How is that fair? Actually, I don't know many Christians who think that way. But there are a lot of people who are in their state right now, in a lost state, who think that way. What do you mean? I mean the person who says, I would love to believe in Jesus, but I have created too much havoc in my life. I would love to give my life to Jesus, but I have been a non-Christian my entire life. Why should I think right now, at the last second, I can change my mind, and God will receive me? Because He does. Because He is a God of mercy. Jesus even tells a parable about that. The parable of the landowner, who hires some guys in the morning and sends them out to work in his vineyards, hires some more guys around noon, and then... At the end of the day, just before, one hour before they're going to knock off work, he hires some more guys. And then it comes time to pay them, and he pays them all the exact same wages. Well, the guys who worked all day said, that's not fair. They come to the landowner and they say, wait a minute, we've worked all day, and these guys are getting paid the same as we are? And the landowner says, isn't it my money? Aren't I allowed to spend it the way I see? The message is this. God is a God of mercy. There is one reason that we live. One reason. That is to discover Jesus Christ. And to find salvation and then eternity with Him. Our lives are a blip on the screen. But eternity is huge. And that's what God is drawing us to. And that's why God wants us to believe in Jesus. And to follow Him today. Two weeks ago, we talked about our legacy. And yours and mine is as simple as the decision we make for Christ Jesus today. Whether you've been a long time believer or not, the decision you make to live for Jesus today makes all the difference in the world. But don't wait for it. It can come so quickly. Live it today. Well, verse 12 of chapter 50, moving on, verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them, that is Jacob's sons, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had brought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? And so they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. He wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants, gang. Joseph's brothers, number three, are faithless in their salvation. They are faithless in their salvation. The word, by the way, for wept here isn't sobbing. It's a word for quiet weeping. Joseph was grieved in his spirit, in his heart. He was grieved because they didn't get it. After 17 years together here, my brothers, you still don't understand my character, my nature, my integrity? His brothers are faithless. They truly didn't believe that Joseph had a heart of love and forgiveness toward them. And so Joseph begins to weep. He's hurt. He's torn up by it. You guys actually think that now I would turn on you? Don't you understand? And Joseph wept. And I wonder if Jesus... Shed similar tears today. What do you mean? No, I'm not going to worship today. Jesus must just be sick of my sin. No, Jesus has got to judge me for this one. How in the world could Jesus forgive me after this? And we question His mercy, His grace, and in so doing, we question His very character of forgiveness and love. Ephesians four thirty tells us the following. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, how can I do that? How could I, a simple human, grieve God's Holy Spirit? I'll tell you one way. By doubting His grace. We can grieve God's Spirit by doubting His grace, doubting His forgiveness, doubting our salvation that comes by His mercy as a free gift of God. Ephesians 4.30 doesn't just say don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It says do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve Him. Don't turn their back on that salvation. Don't reject it. Don't assume that His salvation, that His grace, that His death on the cross is not enough to save you. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us as he came into Jerusalem on that last week that he began to weep. And he cried out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are unwilling. Matthew 23, 37. Listen, this is God's heart to you this morning. No matter what you've done or where you've been, Jesus has washed away that sin. He he wants right now to gather you and I under his wings. Which is why Paul could write in Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, how does Joseph respond to his brother's faithlessness, their lack of faith? Number four, jot this down. Joseph is faithful to his position in the mission. He's faithful to his position in the mission. Verse 18. Then his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, and I have this underlined, for am I in God's place? Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, Joseph says, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Wow, what a brother. What great love. What incredible forgiveness. Joseph knows his position with respect to the mission. That is God's mission. He understands, man, I'm simply a tool in the toolbox of the master craftsman. Joseph is keenly and clearly aware of God's mercy and grace. He says, listen, what you meant for evil for me, God meant it for good. Joseph's kindness and grace is firmly grounded in recognizing his place in the larger mission of God. What was God's mission at the time? To preserve a people complete. To save them. To protect them. To bring about their salvation, literally, from the famine of that day. And this is key, gang. It is key to walking in humble faith as a Christian. Know your position with regards to your mission. Remember, Jesus gave us a very clear mission statement. Matthew 28, 18-20, we call it the Great Commission. Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Jesus is clearly saying you've got a mission. Walk that mission. Live that mission. But gang, know your position in the mission. Paul says in Romans 6.19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, Resulting in sanctification. When I gave myself over to the Lordship of Jesus, I gave up my rights. I was a slave to sin, but no longer. Now I'm a slave, as Paul puts it. A slave to righteousness. Because it's His plan. It's His mercy. It's His mission. And I am a tool in the toolbox of the Father. And when He needs me, He reaches in and pulls me out and uses me. And otherwise, He sets me in that box. I'm saved. But I am a slave. Know your position with regards to your mission. Well, verse 22 of Genesis chapter 50. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt. He and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, and also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, they were born on Joseph's knees. Grandparents, especially, you ought to underline that phrase. Born on Joseph's knees. Now, it's not meaning to be gross. It's not like he was there when the kids were born, you know, right down there on his knees. That's not what it's talking about. They were raised on the knees of Joseph. He brings them up on his knees. This is a granddad who is involved with his grandkids. You see, Joseph gets up in years, and he's no longer governing a nation. Now he's growing grandchildren. He doesn't have the weight of Egypt on his shoulders. He has the weight of his grandkids on his lap. He brings them up on his knees. This is a granddad who's involved with his grandkids. And grandparents, let me ask you, are you raising your grandkids on your knees? On your knees. Are you bringing them up on your knees? Well, my grandkids live in another state, Rick. Yeah. But are you raising them on your knees? Are you praying for them? Are you bringing them up to your heavenly father on your knees? I can promise you this Joseph's grandkids didn't care about the greatness of his story, his political prowess, or his public life. They just knew their granddad loved him as they were raised on his knees. And grandparents, you have an opportunity for ministry unlike any other time in your life. Raise your grandkids on your knees. Parents, raise your children on your knees. Pray for them constantly. It is the best and most powerful thing you can do in their lives. Well, as we close out, verse 24 tells us that Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, that is, visit you. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. Number five in our list, Joseph is faithful Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped that. Number five was Joseph is faithful to the next generation. That was talking about his grandchildren and raising them up on his knees. He's faithful to the next generation. Number six in our list, Joseph is faithful to a great proclamation. He's faithful to a great proclamation. All the other great Egyptian leaders built monuments and sphinxes and pyramids to their glory, but not Joseph. His bones... His burial would proclaim something far more wonderful. You know the story. 400 more years will pass. And another great leader will emerge on the scene for God's people. A leader who will bring the people out of Egypt and back into the land of promise. A man by the name of Moses. 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 And Exodus 13, verse 19, tells us that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Moses took Joseph's bones with him. Moses did. Hey, you guys take care of the flocks and the herds and the sheep and all the stuff and the carts. Make sure I have Joseph's bones. I will take them with me. Why? Why? Because Joseph's bones were more than the residue of an old saint's life. They were a memorial. A proclamation of Israel's homecoming. His bones stood out as a promise. You shall carry my bones up from here, Joseph said. And they did. And as the children of Israel would be drawn out of Egypt in that tremendous, amazing exodus that we're going to study next. As that event happened... Joseph's bones were carried as well and this symbol for 350 to 400 years for the people of Israel trapped there slaved in bondage in Egypt the bones of Joseph were a promise, a proclamation that they would go up to the land and we have a very similar promise a greater proclamation Jesus said this is my body broken for you this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. And we fellowship in communion every Sunday morning as a proclamation of our homecoming. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And as we do, Paul says, we proclaim his return to the land. First Corinthians 11.26, Paul said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclamation. Joseph bones his bones were a promise of return and in the same way as we take communion each week it's a promise of return a proclamation of homecoming on a day not too far away well let's finish verse 26 of Genesis 50 and Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And so quietly ends the book of Genesis. Now you might say, wait, that's anticlimactic. Where's the last hurrah? And I say, this is the perfect ending of this book. You see, the story begins with creation. It ends with a coffin. It started out with glory. It ends with a grave. It opens with the living God. It ends with a dead man. And that's the message of Genesis. That's the picture. That's what God wants us to understand, needs us to see. God brought it, man blew it. God lays it all out, the wonders and glories of his creation, everything that man could possibly need. And we messed it up. And that's the Holy Spirit's commentary on mankind. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God said, In the day that you eat from it, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, The day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. When you rebel against me, God says, when you sin, when you violate my one law, and it was just one law. Adam and Eve didn't have a bunch of laws to follow. They just had one. It wasn't like you can't go through the stop sign, and and it wasn't like you can't steal this, you can't do that, or you can't do this. It was one law. You cannot eat of the fruit of this tree. That's it. Everything else is yours to enjoy, but don't violate this one law, and they did of course, Satan countered God's promise. God said, in the day of you, you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you sin, you will die. And Satan says, counters with the greatest self-deception deception of history. In Genesis 3, verse 4, surely you will not die. Surely you will not die. Satan got it wrong. He didn't even get in Eve's name right. He called her Shirley. <laughs> it should have been Eve. You will not die, but even then he's wrong. Because sin guarantees death. The message of Genesis, the clarion call of history itself is obvious. Paul says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But, But Joseph... And Joseph here, he, he dies. He was such a great man. Such a stellar example of faithfulness and godliness. How then could he die? When you read the story of Joseph, you understand that like Daniel, here is one man in the Bible for whom we can find no recorded sin. Now I know, I'm sure, I'm positive that Joseph sinned. But we don't see it listed in scripture. We see faithfulness, commitment. We see a follower of God. One who believes and understands what God is doing and gives up his life for what God is doing. We don't see the sin. So why is it that he dies anyway? If he was such a great man, how could he die? Gang, even the slightest sin, even one bite of one piece of fruit, if it's done in rebellion to God, will yield death. The wages of sin is death. But worse yet, you might think, well, if that's Joseph's end, I don't have a chance. I don't have a possible chance. When I look at Joseph's life and compare it to mine and my failure and my sin, how can I possibly think that I could overcome death? You see, (laughs) praise God, we have a chance. Because Paul didn't just say, for the wages of sin is death. He said, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord there is a great escape there is an exodus from the bondage of sin and death and we'll see that plan unfold before our very eyes in amazing ways as we move on in this story of God's redemptive saving love for mankind in the book of Exodus Genesis it's the book of beginning it's the book of God's greatness and man's grave of God's wonder and man's failure again of creation and the coffin but as we move into Exodus we will see the most amazing story unveiled this grand picture of the redemptive plan of God across all of history involving a people involving the blood of a lamb and involving a great mass exodus from the place of bondage to the place of promise but I'm getting ahead of myself aren't I? That's the book of Exodus. And we close the book of Genesis understanding this seventh and final point. That God is faithful in redemption.